our CCF retreat that's going on right now. Um, Pastor Marcus and leaders of uh, Cornerstone Christian Fellowship are having a weekend retreat. And they're having a veritable uh, spiritual feast, studying the Word of God together. And they might be joining us this afternoon at the picnic. Not quite sure. Um, but I'm sure that they've um, had a tremendous time in the Word and prayer and in fellowship over this weekend. I'll tell you that <clears throat> Pastor Marcus has done a real, just a fantastic job, a tremendous job uh, with the collegians in that ministry. Um, the men and women are powerfully, have been powerfully impacted by his example, by his, <clears throat> by his life, by his teaching ministry, and it seems like many young leaders are headed our way uh, because of um, the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, in that ministry. So I'd ask you, if you have not done so recently, uh, to pray for Pastor Marcus and his wife Amy. Pray for that ministry. Pray for the young men and women. Those formative years when you really um, take seriously the things of God. May God, the Holy Spirit, may take root in their hearts and cause them to grow tremendously all for His purposes. Um, continue to, let's continue to pray for Dale and Joan. Um, it's sunken for them and it's sunken for us. It's definitely uh, sunken for me. This past week, I am uh, spiritually energized, but emotionally just spent, emotionally drained. Uh, this past Lord's Day, a week ago, we had a full service. And then we had sending service. Uh, we had um, Joan and Julie's, uh, Stephen's parents come out and uh, Dale's parents come out and to uh, minister to all of them and to formally send them off was just a great encouragement. And then afterwards, uh, to go out to the Master's Seminary and to see uh, Jason graduate was incredible as well. Steve Lawson's sermon, I, I hear, is online. So if you, if you missed it or if you heard it and uh, you just want to keep it for record whenever those times when you're discouraged concerning the Word of God, you can hear for your encouragement. It's a great job by Pastor Lawson. And just to be with all of you, um, to rejoice in um, God's work in Jason's life was a thrill. And then Monday, we had staff meetings, we had leadership meetings, and then Tuesday night, we almost got arrested at LA Airport. There were 85 of us, around at least 85 of us gathered to... Uh, Send Dale and Joan off. It was kind of scary. Just there's masses of cornerstone people. I was thinking it's a very non-threatening group. You know, we have young men and women. We have moms with strollers and children. So nothing for the security to be overly concerned about. But nonetheless, we created um, just a logistical nightmare for some of the security workers out there. And we're out there from 5:45 till almost nine o'clock and. Uh, to send them off for the joy. So, this week, I don't know about you guys, but I'm spiritually energized, pumped up, but I am emotionally drained. I am just worn out. So, I've been praying a lot, and um, God's been giving me grace uh, to study the Word and really um, glean truths from our passage here in John 16. As we have noted, last week we have 24 sentences before Christ ends his upper room discourse with the disciples. In John 17, the record there is not a discourse that Christ has with the twelve or with the eleven, but it is his high priestly prayer. The focus of his, um, of his words are it's God, not, not the disciples. And um, I'm really looking forward to our study in John 17. We have less than uh, 15 sentences until Christ uh, ends his um, address, his final words, words of encouragement to the disciples. And a theme of uh, the final few chapters, his final words are the Holy Spirit, the departure of Christ. But the undergirding theme is the sorrow of the disciples. The sorrow of the disciples. If you have been tracking with us for the past several months, you've been highlighting the historical context, the emotional, situational context of these chapters, you would understand that everyone's hearts are breaking 
as these words are said, our Lord's heart is breaking within Him. I mean, it started from His birth and His incarnation. He was a man of sorrows. It heightened every hour, every day, every week, month, year He spent on earth in sinful humanity. It's culminating in John 12 when it will reach its peak on Calvary when God the Father forsakes Him. In the final hours of encouraging the disciples, our Lord is clear, His heart is disturbed within Him. It is full of grief and pain and heartache. But not just Christ, the disciples' hearts, they are melting as well within them. That is why He began this discourse in chapter 14, verse 1, with these words, Let not your hearts be troubled. That's a command. Do not allow your, your hearts to be discouraged, despondent, brought low. He repeats that again in verse 27, almost a, a sandwich, a, a, a command, a sandwich, a sandwich commands of not letting them be discouraged. Again, it says in verse 27, uh, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Several months ago in our study of John 14, we looked at, we examined the reasons why the disciples' hearts are discouraged and troubled, full of sorrow. Probably the third reason, the the least reason is um, the prophecy of Peter's denial disturbed their hearts. When Christ said that Peter would deny the Lord three times before the rooster crows, undoubtedly, disturbed the hearts of the disciples because Peter was their spokesperson. He was their leader. He was the one who had the most courage, most strength, one who would stand boldly and declare his faith in Christ as the Holy One of God when others doubted. So when they heard Peter would deny the Lord, undoubtedly, it disturbed their hearts. The second reason was Peter's heart. For him to hear that he himself would deny the Lord three times, I'm sure, discouraged his heart greatly. There was a sense of self-deception, self-denial in his, in his perspective, but there must have been a sense in his heart where as he heard the rebuke of Christ, if it possibly could be true, I'm sure Peter was demoralized. But the main reason, the greatest reason, the central reason for their discouragement was Christ's words telling them that He was leaving them, that He was going away, and that they cannot follow Him. John thirteen thirty three, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me. But just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Again in verse 36, Jesus told Peter, when Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Why can I follow you now? He said in verse 37, Christ said in verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me. You cannot follow me now. These words grieved them to no end. They loved Christ. They left everything to follow the Lord. And when Christ said He is going away, and they will be separated, cause their hearts to tremble. Now, in our passage this morning, 16, 16 through 24, we find our Lord modeling spiritual leadership. We find our Lord as a model of a servant. Instead of focusing on His own needs, on His own concerns, His own burdens of facing Calvary, He turns his attention to the eleven for one purpose, to comfort them, to encourage them. They should be encouraging Christ. They should be ministering to Him, supporting Him. Instead, in the hour of His greatest need, He turns His focus, attention away from Himself, and He seeks to meet the need of His disciples, and He encourages them, by giving them the second best news possible for someone who grieves over separation. Second, poss- second best possible news. 
the best possible news is I'm not leaving, right? Okay, I changed my, my t- change of plans, my itinerary has changed. After all, I'm going to stay after all, no problem. That's the best news. Christ cannot, will not give them such news. He gives them the second best possible news, which is that their separation would be only temporary. It would only be a temporal separation. So four simple points to guide us through our text this morning. That it is a passing separation, present confusion, perfect illustration, and a permanent promise. Four Ps, passing separation, present confusion, perfect illustration, and permanent promise. The greatest word that could ever be said to a person grieving over uh, being separated from a loved one is that this separation will be temporary. In John 16, that's, what, that's exactly what the disciples are going through and Christ comforts them by telling them that this is a passing separation. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. Christ restates that it is indeed a separation. In just a little while, you will see me no longer. To fully understand what our Lord is saying in verse 16, we need to consider that phrase, a little while, that appears twice in verse 16. That phrase, a little while, refers to weeks or days or even hours. If you were to go back to John 7.33, Christ said, I will be with you a little longer than I am going to Him who sent me. At that time, His departure was weeks away. And even weeks away, He considered that a little while. Weeks, He considered that a little while. In John 12.35, Jesus said to the Jews, The light is among you for a little while longer. And this refers to about seven days. So for Christ, not just weeks, but seven days was considered a little while. John 13.33 again, Yet a little while I am with you. At this point, only a matter of a few hours. This is right after Christ washed the feet of the disciples. Within six to nine hours, He would be crucified on the cross. And he would, he would die and be separate from them. So when Christ says a little while, it could mean anywhere from weeks, days, and even hours. Christ said here now, a little while again. And here, in verse 16, he refers to a few hours. In fact, within maybe two, most likely within three hours, uh, temple guards would come to arrest him and take him away. And within a few short hours after that, he would be crucified. Jesus knew that. So he told them in a few in a little while, he will be separate from them. But he says, and he continues and concludes in verse 16, that this separation again was not permanent. A little while, you will see, see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. He's saying, yes, I will go, go away. It is true, but it is only temporary. Though I will go away in a little while, in a short amount of time. It could refer to hours or days or weeks, but no more than weeks. I will be back. I will come back. He gave them hope, which offered them the greatest possible alleviation from their sorrow. Now the question is, what was Christ referring to? Now when was He referring to? What was He referring to? Was He referring to His second coming? Was He referring to His resurrection? Or was Christ referring to His return at another time, at another context? Well, let's address these one by one. I do not believe Christ is talking about His second coming you know, when Christ comes back with all His glory to establish um, His millennial kingdom on earth, I don't believe He's saying that because it makes no sense. He's saying, in a little while I'll be gone, but in 2,000 plus years I'll be back, so don't worry. Right? Well, thanks Jesus. You know, <laughs> that encourages me. You know, wow, 2,000 years. I'll be waiting for you. I mean, I, how does that encourage anyone? Right? That doesn't make sense. Or... 
What about the resurrection? Is Christ talking about, yes, I will die within a few hours, but in a little while, within a few days, I'll be raised from the dead, triumphing over sin and death, and I'll be with you again. Is Christ saying that? I don't think so either, because that return is not a permanent return. What's happening there? Christ goes away, he returns, and he says, oh, I've got to go, go away again. Right? It's not a permanent return. I believe it first to, again, because of these reasons and because of the context, he's referring to the coming of Christ to believers through the Holy Spirit. That he will return. And his return through the Holy Spirit will be permanent, will be eternal. Not just here on earth, but the Holy Spirit will abide in us forever, here and beyond. And that is what Christ is turning to, referring to. John 14, 16 and 17. I will ask the Father once I am gone, when I am in His presence. I will ask Him and He will give you not heteros helper, not a different kind of helper, but a loss, another helper. Same essence, same kind of helper. I am your helper now, but when I go, I will send a paraclete, and He is just like me. Romans 8, 9, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So Christ Himself will come back to the Holy Spirit to help us, and verse 16, to be with you forever. Once He comes back and He's with us, He dwells within us, it will be permanent and there will never ever be a separation between believers and Christ. We will not experience death. Though physically we, we may and we will die, but even in death, because the Holy Spirit will abide in communion with Christ for eternity, there will never ever, we will never experience a separation from Christ because of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. This future tense, permanent indwelling, He will be in you, abiding in you forever. Verse 18, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. A little while you will see me no more, but you will see me. Not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. Because I live, you also will live. And last week's passage, John sixteen thirteen, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come, just as Christ instructed, encouraged, exhorted, rebuked, and corrected the disciples. And build them up. Likewise, the Holy Spirit will be involved with the same ministry. And He will declare to us truth. And reveal to us the things that are to come. And verse 14, He will glorify Christ. He will magnify Christ before our eyes. He will reveal God the Son to our souls. To the inner man. Cause us to see the beauty, the holiness, the truth of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit will do this. So when Christ said to the disciples that they would see Him again, He was not talking about a physical seeing, but He was talking about a spiritual seeing through the Holy Spirit. Whereupon the Spirit of Christ will come and dwell in us eternally. This is what Christ promised would happen and that's exactly what has happened. On Acts 2 and Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, as subsequently to all believers, the Holy Spirit indwells in every Christian. He manifests Christ to us, John fourteen twenty one. He comforts and strengthens us, John fourteen twenty six. He testifies to Jesus Christ, John fifteen twenty six. He not only convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, sixteen eight through eleven. But again, he declares to us and prophesies to us truth, 16.13, and he glorifies Christ in our lives, in our, in our hearts, in our spirits, John 16.14. The fulfillment of Christ's promise came on the day of Pentecost, and this is a wonderful promise that every Christian has. 
There is no such thing as a Christian who does not possess the indwelling Holy Spirit. Christ indwells in every Christian through the Holy Spirit. Period. There is no such thing as a Christian who possesses a temporary Holy Spirit. where The Holy Spirit comes and goes, comes and goes. He's kind of schizophrenic. He's kind of half committal. Our obedience is partial. Obedience is uh, not, not clear. It's not, it's not permanent. Such a thing does not exist because Holy Spirit abides forever. All believers have experienced the Holy Spirit in this way. Not through His feeling, not through some senses, not through emotions, but all believers have experienced the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The changing of the heart, opening of the eyes, the clearing of the senses, illumination of the scriptures, where a person's affections, emotions have changed from love for this world, love for the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh has changed towards loving things of Christ, loving things of God. All believers have experienced salvation, growth, maturity, our own sanctification. And not only that, all believers, as they commit themselves to ministry of the gospel, have experienced Acts 1.8, of being filled with the dunamis of the Holy Spirit as we testify to Christ. As we share the gospel, we've experienced the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit taking our feeble efforts, our feeble words, our feeble lives and using it to convict sinners and saving many, having the lost come to Christ through our lives and through our ministry. That's what I think Jason was saying. That's all the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's not us. Even our church service, our church gathering, our fellowship, believers experience that. And we know that's not me. It's the clay pot. I'm just throwaway pot, you know, outwardly fading away, wasting away, inwardly being renewed. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. This is what Christ declared. This is what Christ promised. And this was fulfilled to the 11 in Acts chapter 2. Peter stood up boldly and declared the gospel. This is fulfilled throughout the book of Acts. And 2,000 years later, halfway around the world, it is being fulfilled in our very lives. But Christ promised that He will not leave us as orphans, that He will come back to the Holy Spirit. Now, we have the, the, the luxury of um, 27 books of the New Testament. We have the luxury of hindsight but for the disciples that were listening to Christ that evening, this didn't make sense. They really couldn't make heads or tails of this. It seemed like to them that Christ was speaking in riddles and parables. It was a mystery that was unfathomable to them. And so, they kind of stopped asking Jesus any more questions. Right? They, kind of, they, can't, they want Christ to stop for a second and they turn to one another. And they begin to, dis- to dialogue with one another. Do you understand what he's talking about? Peter, do you have any idea? Am, am I just dense? Am I just clueless? What do you think, Thomas? What do you think, John? They began to kind of go into a huddle to talk about what Christ has just said. The present confusion. Verse 17. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, they're bringing up all these statements that Christ just made, and they're asking one another if they understand what He is talking about. Verse 18, we do not know what He's talking about. They were confused, they were perplexed. Apparently, they didn't have the courage or the wherewithal to ask Christ to clarify what He meant. They began to just... Puzzlement, ask one another. The Lord knew the disciples were puzzled, so he asked a question for them. Verse 19 Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again, A little while and you will see me? This is the question, isn't it? But our Lord, understanding 
their hearts takes a different approach. Now follow with me here. Um, you know, parents with children understand this. When kids ask questions, they're not just literally asking questions. That we understand um, you know, why they're asking the question. Right? The heart, the motivation that's driving this question. So even a literal answer will not satisfy them. Christ understands this. That though they're asking these technical questions about you leaving and coming back, what's driving their confusion is their sorrow, their sadness over Christ's departure. So, instead of logically answering verse, the question of verse 19, our Lord intuitively uh, answers the heart of the question, right? The sorrow, the grief that's driving this confusion. And in verse 20 and 21, he gives a perfect illustration, a perfect analogy to soothe their discouraged hearts. He begins by saying in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, that repetition indicates that Christ was making a critical, solemn statement. Yes, you will weep and lament. Weep is clio, means to sob, means to wail aloud, means it's used of any loud expression of grief. Especially in mourning for the dead, it describes the external uh, uh, expression of sorrow and grief. The second one, lament, speaks of the internal sorrow, the internal grief experienced by a mourner. These two words, use, the employment of these two words is important because uh, in, in ancient Near East, it was common for at least the middle, upper middle class, the rich, to hire professional mourners men and women, to come to a funeral to weep and wail and cry loudly for the whole duration of the funeral. It was their way of honoring the memory of the person who, who has passed away. So they, they saw it. If there was a lot of crying, a lot of mourning, it honors the dead person. So they would hire professional you know, wailers to come and say, okay, for $20, will you wail for eight hours, Right? Okay, $30. Okay, six hours, you get a 15-minute break, and, you know, you get a free meal, and you wail for six hours. Okay, great, sign the contract. And these throngs of people will come, and they will cry for the whole funeral, except for their break time and their meal time, right? But as they were wailing aloud, there was no real sorrow in their hearts. There was no grief over that person. Maybe they were, they were method acting, you know, they're thinking about their lost puppy or... They're locking up and thinking about their, I don't know, marriages or something. You know, and they're wailing outwardly, but in their hearts there was no true sorrow. But Christ describes their sorrow with these two words. Not only will you cry out loudly, externally, but you are not professional mourners. In your heart of hearts, you'll be full of sorrow as well. There will be external weeping. Internal grief. And I found a verse that has escaped me in 15 years of studying the Bible. John 22:45. Perhaps I've, I've been too harsh concerning the disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John. Maybe I need to apologize when I go to heaven for uh, 15 years of disparaging them in the Garden of Gethsemane. It seems that the reason for their, uh, um, their drowsiness in the Garden of Gethsemane, the reason for their being sleepy was not just pride or laziness or self-centeredness, but there was an element of sorrow, and that was the reason why they slept. John, Luke 22:45, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. They were so grieved, they were so sad, that Christ was leaving them, that it was a reality to them, that because their hearts were so heavy, that it caused them exhaustion, and so they slept. Right? So they were indeed sorrowful. Uh, Mark 16.10, um, 
after the resurrection, when the women told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept, they were, they, they were mourning and they were weeping, they were sorrowful over Christ. So much so, three days later, in Luke 24, 21, when the stranger asks the disciples about the occurrences in Jerusalem, it seems that they were sorrowful to the point of losing a firm grasp of their faith in Christ. They speak of their faith as in past tense. Luke 24, 21, But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Past tense. We had hoped that He was the Messiah. 16.11 When Mary came to tell them that Christ was alive three days later because they were still mourning and weeping over His death, the disciples would not believe it. So Christ said, Yes, you will have grief in your hearts and you will wail, you will cry out aloud. And this is aggravated by the fact that the world will not weep with them. The world will do the exact opposite. Verse 20, the world will rejoice. The world would exult in the death of the Messiah, seeing Him hanging on the cross, suffering and, and, and giving His life for the sins of the world. They will not share in their sorrow. In fact, they would gloat. They would celebrate they would mock the Messiah. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-nine. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. They made a scene. It was a trash talking contest. They're reveling, reveling in their uh, mockery of Christ. They're saying to Christ, "You who destroyed the temple, and you would rebuild it in three days, save yourself." If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They had a mini party here in, verse four, in, in this passage, right before the cross. The chief priests, scribes, and elders mocked Him, setting aside their dignity and honor, crying out, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross, and we will believe Him. He trusts in God. Let, it, let God deliver Him now. If He desires Him... If he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Christ said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. What's worse, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. You will be full of sorrow. But here is a turning point. There is that conjunction. You will be full of sorrow, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Very important. So encouraging. So important for believers. You know, you, you could maybe skip highlighting verse 20, except for that last clause there, right? Just don't highlight verse 20, but just highlight your sorrow will turn into joy. Christ was telling them that the very event that causes them grief will give them joy. It's incredible, right? The very event that causes them pain will cause them to rejoice. It is not an idea of replacement, right? It's not like, you know, Elizabeth is sad, she, you know, bumped her toe, okay, Elizabeth, I'll give you candy to make you happy. That's not what's happening here. It's not yet a rough day at work, so you go retail therapy, you go shopping to make yourself feel better, right? It's like for guys, you had a rough day at work, you go to, uh, you know, meal therapy, buffet therapy, all you can eat therapy, and so you kind of replace this sorrow with something else, right? Now, that's not what Christ is saying. Christ is saying, the very thing that oppresses your heart, causes you grief, will lift you into joy. What is that thing that caused them much sorrow? It's the cross. The place of their separation. The place where Christ will leave them. That very place, that very instrument of death of their beloved Lord to them will be a source of tremendous joy. Isn't that incredible? And that's exactly what happened. That's why for, from the beginning of church history, 
the one sign that identified Christians, universally known, was the cross. Was the cross. To us, that is our joy. That is our pride. That is what we gloat in. That is our boast. That's what Paul boasted in Galatians 6.14. He wanted to preach Christ and Him crucified. And non-believers wonder, why do you guys... Are so, why are you so fixated on the cross? It marks His death. It's a sorrowful place. It's a painful place. Why do you guys love it so? Why do you sing on the cross? Isn't that a painful thing to remember? Yes, it is. It is bittersweet. Because we understand, we understand that for Christ to save us, it was through the cross. And that's where He left us. That's where He was forsaken by God, enduring His wrath. At the same time, the cross to us, is the source of our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, and the eternal life that we have in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just incredible? God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, and the beauty of the gospel, that the instrument of death to us becomes a spring well of eternal life. And then in verse 21, here is the perfect analogy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for that joy, for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. What a perfect illustration. Increase of pain in childbirth, we know, is caused by Eve's sin. And so when a woman is about to have a child, she has great pain. All moms here, you understand? Verse 21 very well. All fathers experience it. Second, you know, second, indirectly we understand how painful it is. You singles have no idea, right? So maybe go watch like Discovery Channel or something and try to kind of understand what 20, verse 21 is. You know, my wife says often how, you know, she, she hopes that I would understand the pain that's involved in childbirth. And I really have no reference point. My, the greatest pains I've experienced when I sprained my ankle playing ball. But guys, if you sprained your ankle, you know, that, that hurts a lot. I mean, that, it's very painful. Or when I had the shingles several months ago, that was very painful. But my wife tells me, and I believe her, it's far worse. But what's the difference here? When I sprained my ankle and I experienced pain, what, what's the result of my spraining my ankle? Can I... Dunk a basketball now? No. Anything come out of my spring my ankle? No, not at all. It's, it's really, uh, really in vain. It's really all for naught. When I had shingles on my back, what's the result? Do I have this like steel hide in my back and impenetrable to like bullets or something? No. My shingles come and gone. All I have is pain. But for a woman who goes through labor and delivery, experiences that tremendous pain, right? Like number 10, highest on the pain scale. And yet that pain results in the birth of a child, a human being. And so she has great joy, exultant, overflowing joy, because that pain has created life. That same thing. So she looks back on that um, delivery room and she might uh, have memories of the pain. She might look at it with, with maybe f- somewhat fear and trepidation. But ultimately, she has sweet memories of that process because that's where God gave us a son. That's where God gave us our daughter. Ask any mom, what is the greatest joy she's ever had? And she will say, one of the greatest joys in our life is the birth of her child. Our Lord used this illustration of human joy to illustrate how God will turn our sorrows into joy. Specifically the disciples, when they saw the cross hanging there, it was the most cruel, unsightly scene ever seen by them. Their Lord, their Master, gentle, meek, without sin, humble, rightful King of Israel, and he is cruelly crucified on the cross. He's being spat upon. He's been tortured. He's been whipped. Crown of thorns on his head. His face is marred. This figure, unlike any man, 
And so a cruel sight. And yet, a short while later, that pain, memory of their pain of the cross has been transformed into joy because it is through the cross that their sins have been forgiven. For them and for us as well. And then to close, verse 22, he gives them a permanent promise, a permanent promise. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Through the Holy Spirit, I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. A threefold promise. I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. It's a promise of Christ's return to each believer from the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of Christ bringing joy, causing the hearts to rejoice. And it's the promise of the permanence of this joy that as a result of Christ's work on the cross, believers will experience a permanent, eternal joy that will never fade away, that never will be destroyed, that can never be taken away. No man can take it from us, even our cruel enemy, Satan, even death itself, even our sins cannot take the joy that Christ gives us through the Holy Spirit. All believers know this. All experience, believers experience this. We, we go through struggles in life, family. We go through uh, illness and suffering. We have issues in our families and jobs, relationships and ministry. Our lives are filled with trouble externally, but in the core of our hearts where the Holy Spirit resides, all believers confess that there is joy. There is lasting joy because of Christ's promise and Christ promised and it is fulfilled. No man can take this joy away from us as a Christian. It is permanently ours. It is permanently ours. Now this helps us in ministry. This helps us in evangelism. This helps us to go boldly in serving God here and abroad in missions, knowing that this uncertain world might take a lot of things from us, maybe even take our family, even take our lives, but the world, our enemy, cannot take away the joy that we have in Christ. That is why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 6, um, verse 10, one of my you know, verses that I go to often, you know, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Right? Sorrowful. Always. He's, he's done recounting all the sufferings, all the persecutions, hunger, theft, being robbed, being shipwrecked, being tortured. He says, man, my life is just one thing after another full of sorrow. And yet, at midnight in the prison cell with Barnabas, what am I doing? I am praising God. I'm singing spiritual songs, praising God because I'm full of of joy. Well, two final thoughts to close our time. Let me ask you, what is the source of your joy? What is the source of your joy this morning? Is it something temporal, fleeting, situational? Is it your possessions, your relationships, your family, money, is it even ministry, the church? What is the source of your joy? You must understand by now that, that is not joy. It's a cheap substitute. You might be happy, but you know that at the core of it, it's empty. Nothing of substance. And you're always afraid because I, I guarantee, God guarantees, this, that will be taken away from you. Whatever happiness you have in this world, it will be taken away from you. Right. ultimately at death, whatever you have, whatever you own, whatever you are, will be taken away from you, you know, cruelly, without any compassion or pity, our enemy will take it from you. If not before that, it will be taken away from you and I. Why invest so much on things that will give us such little joy? 
when we have this invitation to experience the joy of the Holy Spirit. The source of believers may be the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the cross of our Lord be the foundation of our joy, an eternal spring that grants us eternal joy through the Holy Spirit. The joy of the disciples uh, in John 20:20 when they saw the risen Lord. The joy of the disciples in Luke 24 when they experienced their hearts burning within them as they, uh, as the as Christ unveiled the mysteries of the suffering servant in the Old Testament to them. Uh, the joy of the New Testament church as they were suffering for the gospel. Acts 5:39 through 41. They rejoiced. having been been counted worthy to suffer shame for the cause of Christ. May that be the joy uh, that is in your heart as well as mine this morning. Secondly, what what is your grief? What is your sorrow? Believers, we ought to be filled with sorrow. We ought to be grieving. We ought to be brought low. We ought to be just filled with pain and anguish, not because Christ is separated from us, separate from us, no, Christ is not. Christ is with us through the Holy Spirit permanently. We grieve and we are sorrowful because Christ is separated from the lost. When we see through the eyes of faith that Christ is separate from our parents, our siblings, our co-workers, the world at large, and we see this, their state, how they are apart from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord, it should cause us unceasing anguish and sorrow. It must. Because that is the proof of our love for Christ. Let me repeat that. The degree we grieve over the, lo- over the lost and their separation from Christ, to that degree... We love Christ and we know Christ's love for us. What do I base that from? I base that from Romans 8, 35 through 39. And people love that passage because it's all about how nothing separates us from Christ. Right? 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword... No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everybody says, Amen. That's a permanent promise. Nothing can separate Christ's love for me. But then, what does Paul say in the very next verse? Romans 9, 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Why? Paul, you just declared of the great love that Christ has for believers and how that there's nothing that could separate you from Christ's love. Why do you have great sorrow? Why do you experience unceasing anguish in your heart? Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says later on, Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul, his love for Christ and his understanding of Christ's love for him was vindicated and revealed by how much he was grieving over the loss, over the loss, how they were separated from Christ. What about you this morning? Do you grieve today? You know, I, 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 I can say honestly and safely that the Holy Spirit is grieved and it disturbs Christians 
when professing Christians are just enjoying life. They're living it up. They're soaking it all in. They're enjoying the Christian life and the joy and the praise and the goodness of Christianity. And there is no anguish. There is no sorrow. There is no grieving. They're just happy. Their lives are filled with entertainment, fun, and activities while a world of people around them are perishing without Christ. Christ said, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who are fed, well fed now. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will go hungry and you will mourn and weep. The degree we enjoy the Holy Spirit and the permanent promise of joy the same time as believers, true believers, experience great sorrow, unceasing anguish because we understand we are not the end of our salvation. The Holy Spirit's work does not end with us. He desires that all men be saved. That The Holy Spirit desires that men throughout the world are joined with Christ, reconciled with the Savior. Holy Spirit desires to glorify Christ in the eyes of all men, not just us. Oh Lord, that we would continue to believe in the Holy Spirit, that our faith in the Holy Spirit will not end with our sanctification. Oh Lord, we would we believe in the Holy Spirit for our salvation, for imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. We believe in the Holy Spirit for our maturity. But may we continue to believe in the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts towards the lost and to believe in the Holy Spirit for empowerment, for the ministry of the gospel, and that we might weave in our hearts, we might be restless in our souls, because we know so many around us in the Jerusalem of our lives are still without Christ, and we have yet to declare the gospel to them. We have yet to share with them the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask that the Holy Spirit will do a powerful work in each believer's heart, causing us, Lord, to rejoice in the uh, reconciliation we have with Christ, but to that degree that we'll be burdened for the lost, so that we will rejoice on the day day of your return, knowing that we were used to spread the gospel, that we were used for your glory to make many uh, turn to you and to enjoy salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.